First Timothy three, one through seven. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says this: the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Grass withers and flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let's pray before we consider it further tonight. Heavenly Father, you are, you are God Almighty. You are holy, holy, holy. You dwell in light that is unapproachable. And yet you are a God that desires to be known. And you're able to be known because you reveal yourself to us in your word. And so, Father, we have just read your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would teach it to us so that we might know something of you, so that we might know your grace and your mercy in Jesus Christ, and that we might be able to draw near to you. We pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me, uh, before we really begin, let me say thank you to uh, particularly Les Newsom and John Stone for some of the things that we're going to talk about here tonight. Um, as I've borrowed and uh, stolen and adapted some of these things from them. Um, before, before we moved here to Louisville, Amy and I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, and I, while I was in seminary, I was working with uh, senior high students at our church there. And one of the girls on our staff uh, would do this exercise with her. She was in charge of the senior high girls. So she would do this exercise with them uh, where they would, she would get them to sit down and write down all the characteristics of uh, what they wanted in a husband. You know, write down the ones that they thought were uh, required. Like, I would not marry a guy that is not such and such. And then uh, characteristics or qualities that were desired. Write them down. She gives them a few minutes, and then, uh, you know, then they're going to share them and talk about them. And so now keeping in mind that these are all, you know, the vast majority of these girls would say that they want to marry a Christian guy. Okay. And so then she would have them compare those characteristics that they've written down with biblical characteristics of what a godly man looks like. And you can imagine uh, how interesting some of those comparisons were. Uh, I think two big, generally two big lessons would come out of that. Uh, The first, you would see that most of their qualities that they listed were wildly superficial, right? Uh, You can imagine some of those things like, you know, you want a good personality, uh, you want them to be fun, athletic, good-looking, um, have a nice job, stuff like that. Uh, and those are all good things. And then the second big lesson that would tend to come out of that is that the guys that they were dating at the time did not really match any of the qualities, the, the legitimate qualities, that they wanted in a husband. So it was a, 
it was a great exercise for these girls to do. Um, and in fact, such a great exercise that we're going to do it tonight, right? Uh, not literally. I'm not going to liter- literally write it down, so don't worry. But to the ladies, I would say, have you ever thought about it? I mean, I know you've thought about it, but how specific have you been? What qualities, what qualities are you looking for in, in a husband, in the guy that you're dating? What characteristics and qualities do you want him to have? Um, guys, to you, what kind of, kind of a man do you want to be? What kind of man are you now? What kind of man do you want to be in the future? And so tonight, what we're going to do is really explore that very topic. We're going to look at what the Bible says that a real man, a godly man, looks like. Right? It might seem like a strange passage to read. You're studying dating or relationships. But we're going to talk about what uh, a godly man looks like. And next week, or two weeks from now, right? Guess what we'll talk about? What a godly woman looks like. Exactly. Um, so a little background quickly on this passage. Why did, we choose, why did I choose this passage? Well, this passage is written by Paul to his protege, I guess you could say, Timothy, um, who Paul's planted this church. And now he's sort of handing it over to Timothy, and he writes him this letter of instruction on how to maintain and, and govern the church. And so one of the, one of the things that he tells them about is that, uh, that they need to have leaders in the church. They need to have elders. And so he gives these qualifications. He says, you need to look for men like this in the passage that we just read. And so now, granted, that this is a list of characteristics that are particular to an elder or, or a leader or an overseer in the church. But it makes good sense that if this is what you want your elders or your leaders to look like, right, the, the men that are going to lead in your church, then it makes good sense that these are qualities really that we should see in some measure or to some degree in all men, in all Christian men. And so that's why we chose this passage, and so we're going to run through it. So three things tonight, quickly. Number one, I want you to see that Christian men are men of conviction. Christian men are men of conviction. It's really implicit in this passage uh, that Paul is talking about people, uh, talking about men that are convinced of something. When he's talking about the qualifications of elders, he's talking about overseers and elders, he's, it's implicit that he's talking about men that are already convinced of the truth of the gospel. They already believe that, that they're sinners, that they're spiritually a wreck, and that God has done something for them that they can't do for themselves. Christian men are men that are convinced of their desperate need for the gospel, and that the, that the good news of Jesus Christ is, is actually that, that it's good news. It's not a good plan, right? That God gives you a plan that if you do this, then you will live. Then, I'll, then you'll be saved. But it's actually good news. It's good news that says, see what God has done for you. And they're convinced that this good news centers around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Later in, the, in 1 Timothy, we didn't have uh, time to read or space to put it. Paul says this in verse 16, 3.16. He says, great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. So the mystery of godliness, and then the next words are this. He was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He's clearly talking about Jesus Christ. So you see what Paul's saying. The mystery of godliness is profound, and it is Jesus. So first, I simply want to say that Christian men are men of conviction. And that is that they're convinced of the gospel. Of their need for God to do something for themselves that they can't do. Secondly, we see that Christian men, Christian men are men of character. A man that's convinced of his need for the gospel doesn't, he doesn't stay in that state. He doesn't just trust that the gospel's good and then not worry about how he lives his life. No, quite the opposite. Uh, a man that is convinced of the gospel looks to grow in holiness. He wants to be more and more like the God that saved him. And so Paul tells us that, that a man, if a man's godly, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be expressed in his character. It's going to show up in his life. It's going to be able to be seen. Uh, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to tell. Other people will be able to tell. And so as we, as we sort of begin this list, I want to say this, uh, especially to the ladies. If a man doesn't appear to be godly, then he's not. And now that might sound really simple, but think about that for just a second. If a man doesn't appear to be godly, then he's not. Because it's implied in this list, right? These lists, are, or at least most of them, are things that other people can see. And so if you ever have to say something like, when your friends ask you about your boyfriend and, and how sketchy he is, if you ever have to say anything like, but I get to see a side of him that nobody else does. Or, when it's just the two of us, it, he acts so much different. If you have to say those things, I would say to you, watch out. Because that's not a godly man. If he doesn't appear to be godly, then he isn't. So what does a godly man look like? Well, there are a number of things that Paul lists. Uh, I counted 11. And we're going to run through them real quickly. Number one, a godly man is a man that pursues sexual purity. See, in verse 2, it says that he's the husband of one wife. Or maybe in other words, he's a one-woman man. I think we can say it this way. He, a godly man is a man that looks to honor God in his sexuality. He looks to honor God in the area of his sexuality. It means that he protects the sexual purity of himself and of his girlfriend or his wife. He values sexuality. He protects it and he doesn't take it. So ladies, I'd ask you, do you feel like your sexuality is protected by the guy you're dating, if you're dating somebody? Guys, what's your motivation in spending time with your girlfriend if you're dating somebody? Is it to protect her sexuality or is it to take it? Are you seeking sexual purity? Secondly, verse 2, we see that a, a godly man is one that's sober-minded. He's sober-minded. That's to say he's, he's well-balanced. He's, he's steady. Uh, his emotions don't have the run of him. He knows who he is. The gospel has created an, an evenness in him. 
He's not given to extremes. He's not drug around by his own passions. Um, a godly man is one that's being sober-minded. He's, he's reasonable. He can make reasonable decisions. Thirdly, it says that he's self-controlled. Self-controlled. A godly man is able to control himself. He doesn't need someone else to control him. Now, that might sound strange, but what I mean by that, at least for our purposes, is this. Girls, if, if your guy, if you're dating a guy that's changing because of you, if he needs you in his life to change, then he's not godly. He's not godly. Because he can't control himself. He has no self-control. Fourthly, it says that he, he'll be somebody that's respectable. Respectable. Guys, do you want to, or I guess I would ask this to the ladies. Is the guy that you're dating, or the guy that you want to date, you know, the guys that you would look for, is it somebody that's, um, are they somebody you could look up to? Is it somebody that you could, in some sense, follow after them as they follow Christ? Would you want your kids to grow up and act like them? Godly man's respectable. Fifthly, he's hospitable. A godly man is, is somebody that, that welcomes and reaches out to people. He's a guy that people, and maybe especially strangers, maybe especially people that are in need feel comfortable around because he cares about them. He reaches out. And he does that because he knows that God loved him when he was spiritually poor. Uh, when, he was, when he was God's enemy. He knows that God reached out to him. And so he's hospitable to people around him. He likes to use his resources for other people. Not necessarily just for himself. Number six. He's able... You see in verse two it says that he's able to teach. For our purposes, talking about you know, dating and relationships, I think we can make this application, that a godly man is able to talk about the gospel. Okay? Able to, able to just talk about the gospel. I don't mean, uh, you know, able to teach Sunday school or get into a theological debate and win it, anything like that. But, but guys, are you able to talk about the gospel? That is, do you know enough about what you believe? Have you, have you thought about it enough, reflected on it enough, just to be able to have a conversation about it? Like if somebody came up to you and asked, so you, you go to RUF, are you a Christian? Say, yeah, I am. So I don't know anything about that. What is that? What have you based your life on? Do you know it well enough to be able to talk about it? Seventh, says verse 3 says that he is not a drunkard. Pretty straightforward, right? Um, a godly man is one that's not controlled by alcohol. And now, look, let me say this. This is not a condemnation of alcohol, of course, right? Alcohol is one of God's good gifts, and uh, Bible, at no point does the Bible condemn alcohol. Um, it regulates our use of it, of course. But a godly man is one that can go out and doesn't have to have alcohol to have a good time. He knows who he is. Uh, he has enough wherewithal, enough personality not to need that. He's not controlled by alcohol. One of the effects of alcohol on the body is that it, it lowers your inhibitions, right? It means that um, 
you're more prone to do things that you wouldn't normally do if you weren't under the influence of alcohol, right? You're familiar with this, right? It's college. Um, and so it really, what it means is that you actually are doing things that you really want to do, right? And so to use the excuse, uh, you know, when you, when you try to excuse some action by saying, well, but I was drunk, right? Hope you actually see that that's actually a confirmation of why someone is upset with you, right? Because it's revealing that that's what you really wanted to do, but normally you just have enough wherewithal not to do it. And so if you have to say something like, well, when he doesn't drink, he's a great guy. You're wrong. Because really what you're seeing when he does drink, you're getting a glimpse of what he's really like. Number eight. Verse three, it says he's not violent, but gentle. A godly man can keep his anger in check. He's a guy that people don't have to say things like, well, you don't want to get on his bad side. Um... He's a guy that you don't have to say things like, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with him today. Or feel like you have to walk on eggshells around him. So that, because, it, you know, if he gets upset, then it's just, you know, it's just more trouble than it's worth. He's not violent, but gentle. And so we have to say this. And this might sound extreme, but trust me, it's not. Ladies, if he hits you, or if you're worried that he might hit you, you need to leave him. You need to break up with him. You need to not talk to him anymore. Godly man's gentle. He can be approached without being afraid. Number nine. It says he's not quarrelsome. Verse three. A godly man is a man that's not always stirring up trouble. He's not always picking up, he's not looking to pick fights. He's not looking to, to get people riled up. He's not looking to get into an argument. And the reason is because the gospel's worked inside of him and it's put an end to that hostility. Guys, what do you daydream about? How, how many of your daydreams, and I say you because I never do this, how many of your daydreams end up with you getting into some sort of, um, I guess, altercation, disagreement with somebody, and you either uh, tell them off and look like the champ or they end up on the ground? Right? I've heard that guys have dream, daydreams like that. Not quarrelsome. Because what, the, what those evidence is a radical insecurity in ourselves. It shows that we don't know who we are. Um, and we've got <laughs> to put other people down, right, so that we can have some sort of identity. Number 10. A godly man is one that knows how to handle money. It says he's not a, verse 3 says he's not a lover of money. Godly man's not a materialist. He's a guy that doesn't look to his stuff or his money to make sense out of his life. In fact, quite the opposite. A godly man is one that, that looks to give his stuff away. He views his money and the things that he has, uh, I guess in a sense, on loan from God, that he's a steward of those things and he's to use those resources for other people. He gives his money to the church because he knows it's not his. Godly man knows how to handle money. And lastly, 11th. 11thly, he's a family man. Verse 4 and 5. 
He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. A godly man is one that puts his family first. A godly man loves, he honors his father and mother. How does your, girls, how does your boyfriend treat his parents, particularly his mom? How he treats his parents and particularly his mom is going to tell you a lot about his character. It's going to tell you a lot about his heart. A godly man loves his family and cares for them, protects them, puts their interests above his own. Right, so that largely is the list that Paul gives, and we just spent just a few seconds on each one, not near enough, but it's clear that a Christian man is one whose life uh, is evidence in his character. Thirdly and finally, I want, us, I want us to look at this, that Christian men must be men of contrition. Because the question for you tonight, if, if you're following along and you're listening to this, you're tracking with me, the question for you tonight, especially for the guys, but... You know, it's not mutually exclusive. Obviously, the girls can play along, too. The question for you is, what do you do with that list that we just read and talked about? What do you do with that? How do you respond to those characteristics? I think there are obviously a number of responses that you could have, but I think a few of the main ones would be this. First, I think you might hear that list and uh, those applications that we, might, that we made and think, okay, okay. I, I got that. I mean, I'm not getting drunk, picking fights with people. Um, I'm not, I mean, I don't think I love money. Uh, I know what the gospel is reasonably well. I mean, I think, yeah. And I think I passed pretty, pretty reasonably well, and I'm glad so-and-so was here to hear that, right? And it, it, so if that's your response, I would ask, I would ask you in all tenderness and all love, for you to be honest with yourself just for a few minutes. And if you really read through this list and, and as we expound it just a little bit, if you think, okay, yeah, I got that, I would ask you to take a, a deeper look at yourself and, and to be honest just a little bit. Look into your heart and stop faking it, I guess, just to put it bluntly. Second, I think that you might think, okay, I'm not a godly man at all. I, I, don't have, I don't do any of that stuff. Or, sort of the same thing, I do some of those, but some of them I'm blowing entirely, right? I'm screwing up big time in a couple of those areas. And so, I need to get after it, right? I need to buckle down and quit being so, uh, you know, quit being so quarrelsome. Quit, quit being so angry and violent. I need, to, uh, I need to buckle down and get some of these things right, or otherwise people around me are going to know that I'm not a godly man. And to you, to that response, I want to say I appreciate your honesty, and, and that is on the right track. But I want you to see that if you feel like this list buried you tonight, I want to say that that's actually a good thing. In fact, that's a great thing. But the answer is not to say... So now I need to go do better. All right, I know what a godly man looks like, and so now I'm going to get after it. The third response, I guess you could say, is the gospel response. One of contrition. Or we could say repentance. Because unless you're, you're not listening, or 
you're incredibly self-righteous. This list, if you just take even a, a cursory look at it, will crush you if you try to live up to it. If you take an honest inventory of your life and how you stack up to it. And the reason it does that is because we're all sinners. We're, we're all, we all far, fall short of the mark. And if we just decide to buckle down and try harder next time, we're going to fail. And we know that because we've all tried it, right? The more we fail, the more we fake it in front of other people so they won't realize how big of a screw-up we really are. That we've tried to buckle down like a hundred times, you know, since junior high, and we just keep messing it up. So we keep being more and more fake. But what I want to suggest to you tonight is that we have to end, right, actually right where we started with the gospel. That I think... The right response to this list, to be a godly man, is to let this list come in and crush you. To, as painful as it is, to let, let all those requirements and, and seeing what you're not just sort of wash over you. And I guess for lack of a better way to put it, just own it. Right? To let this list come and crush you. Because the, the good news of the gospel allows you to do that. And it does that in this way. Because it, it can't crush you ultimately. This list cannot come into your life if the gospel is true and ultimately crush you. Because, because God ultimately crushed the only person that ever actually lived up to this list. The only person that's ever lived that actually could read this list and in all honesty and in all truth say, yeah, I did that. I am that. Right? It's Jesus Christ. He's the only person that's ever lived this list, so to speak, perfectly. And yet God crushed him on the cross because he was taking on himself the very fact that you and I can't keep this list. He was becoming our sin on the cross. And God was executing His wrath and judgment onto Jesus. And so if that's true, since that's true, it means that that you and I can look at this list and be honest about it and say, and just be overwhelmed by it. And know that it doesn't ultimately crush us. Because Jesus... Because it crushed Jesus, even though it shouldn't have. And so that there's nothing left for me and you. And so what it means is I can take an honest look at my life and say, yes, I screw up all 11 of those, and I could add some more. But God is still pleased with me, because even though he gave, he gave my sin to Jesus, so to speak, on the cross, what happened also was that he gave, he gave me Jesus' righteousness. He took the fact that Jesus lived 30, whatever, two, three years on earth perfectly, perfectly maintaining people's, you know, his own and other people's sexual purity, and not being angry and violent. He took all that that Jesus did and he gave it to you. And he credits it to you. And so we can respond in contrition. We can look and say, I'm not any of these things, I'm a terrible guy, and God, please forgive me. In fact, that's really the only way that we get to come to God. Psalm 51, 16 and 17 says this. 
Uh, this is, all right, so this is David, right, confessing huge sin. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And like we just said, why will God not despise the contrite heart? Because he despised his son Jesus on the cross. For you and for me. In our place. And in seeing that truth and that that love, that's the only thing that will begin to propel us to not be to be crushed by this list and it be okay and actually begin to live life and run after those things and endeavor to be a godly man and to begin to actually try to live like that. But it's only by seeing God's grace first. And that grace is it's offered to us, it's offered to you, and it's free. Won't you take